Good evening to you. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. I am Jason Kong, and alongside me is Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care and Nicole Bruno of Transitions Guiding Lights. And guys, I've only been here for a few weeks, but you've already tried to pull a fast one on me. You tried to change the name of the show, and you turned the lights out on the studio and pretended like you weren't here, but I, I caught on. You can't get rid of me that easily. We tried to change the name, or did we change no, the name? No, we did change the name of the show. Uh, no, you're in denial still. No, no. It needed I, an update, Jason. It needed an update. I love the new name. It's You're now listening to Aging Matters, and it's a, a, a very appropriate name, and this is about care and comfort that surrounds you. And... I don't know. I'm really excited to be a part of this because, um, you know, it's a good fit. You know, the show content isn't changing, but, you know, we are talking about aging matters. We absolutely are. And the reality is aging is far more complex than it used to be. You know, you would have one doctor for your entire life. Uh, small town concept. And the reality of that is things have changed dramatically. And so we've wanted uh, for this show to bring on actually some physicians as our first guests on uh, Aging Matters to bring a different medical perspective uh, to this discussion today. And our first guest is Dr. Melanie Menser. She is the lead physician and chief executive officer for Generations Family Practice based in Cary. And we'll let Dr. Menser go into more detail on this, but this is a unusual practice that has really was created in a very patient-centric model uh, and in a very holistic way of looking at patients individually. Dr. Minster, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're glad you're here today. And we've got Nicole Bruno with us from uh, Transitions Guiding Lights, who I believe you've had some experience with uh, the program that she operates, the, the uh, Caregiver Support Center. And I'm sure that you're quite familiar. I just saw a recent study from the Pew Group, and they said currently, this is brand new information, which I think we all intuitively feel, but four out of 10 Americans are currently caring for an older adult loved one with a chronic condition, and 50% of all Americans expect to do so at some point in their life. That is huge when you just think about four out of 10 of us. I mean, sitting in this room right now. On my way to the studio today, I had a conversation with a personal friend and colleague who is dealing with an aging loved one and is making healthcare decisions right now. Thankfully, not in a crisis, but I think it speaks to that statistic, Nicole. Yeah, and those are, you know, four people right now, but that's not to say in another year or two who else could be involved with that. So this is something that really just touches everyone. I mean, it's, it's, it's sure, hard to get away from. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. So talk to us a little bit about what you've experienced in your practice when it comes to the caregiving burden. Well, I just want to make a comment on, on uh, the last topic you talked about that it is really critical that we understand the needs of the caregiver because that care is priceless. It, you, if you had to hire somebody to provide that level of care, it would be upwards of $70,000 a year and with a stranger rather than a, a family member. And to provide that care at the end of life is really a wonderful gift, but we have to make sure that those caregivers don't burn out. And I see that a lot in my practice. Uh, daughters and sons taking care of their parents or taking care of their siblings and how it really provides so much stress on them if they're still working. So your agency um, provides courses and care and resources for them 
to continue to take care of their loved ones at home. And a lot of times, I think you've noticed, people just don't know what they don't know. I mean, they're so confused. They enter this world. Suddenly, there's some sort of a crisis, and there's something they have to deal with. And you know, as, as Cooper was just saying on his ride along in here today, he was on the phone with somebody. I get a lot of people randomly sending me Facebook messages when they see my posts about caregiving. They think, oh, she can help. And this one lady just reached delicately, delicately reached out about a situation, and she wasn't quite ready for a lot of information. And my final words were to her, to her anytime I am here. And she wrote back, and she said, just knowing that gives me the courage and makes me feel empowered. Because just to know that there's somebody's got your back in this, because it's such a big, big journey. Right, and, and Guiding Lights is, um, you know, can provide education down to changing a catheter or or dealing with a rash all the way up to dealing with the last moments of life and what to expect and i think having that resource for me as a physician has been wonderful because i spend time with them and i go do house home visits after my patients enter hospice care and they can't uh, come to the office but oftentimes i feel like there there isn't enough time to train everybody and so having that resource is really wonderful and also it gives the family a sense that there is a family behind them supporting them and a lot of energy is generated and uh, people overall feel very good about what they're doing which allows them to you know continue to care for their loved ones and to not have them end up in skilled nursing facilities by themselves alone. And this is, I guess, the, the greatest gift that uh, Transitions has been able to give to the community because it is now comprehensive. And um, I've been interested in hospice care since medical school. I did a month of uh, hospice training uh, in 1979 at St. Christopher's Hospice with Dame Cicely Saunders, the mother of the hospice movement, uh, and Mary Baines, who was the first doctor that worked with her. And uh, I've seen it just blossom over the last 40 years uh, into a movement that is so embellishes the lives of community physicians like me because I know that I don't have to be there all the time, provide everything, and that there are resources for the um, family that provides, you know, as Cicely Saunders used to say, provides um, relief from the total pain of the end of yeah. life, which is the physical, emotional, social, and spiritual components of dying. And those are things that occur both in the person that's dying and the caregivers. And so it's so important to be able to address those issues. And that's what the hospice movement does. And that's what it does for me. Dr. Minster, how do these situations get started? How, how do you start a conversation about this in your practice? You seem to be very comfortable with these conversations and opening these conversations. And, and not everybody who's listening has a physician that is as comfortable opening a discussion about caregiver challenges or end-of-life decision-making or really what are my goals of care? How does, that, how does that present in your practice and how do you get that started? Well, ideally, you begin the conversation when the patient is not dying, is not critically ill. And um, most of the electronic medical records have a little checkbox that says, you know, end-of-life preparation or anticipatory guidance and they want you, with people with chronic illnesses, to address these. And so oftentimes when I will have a new patient, independent of their age, I say to them, do you have advanced directives? Do you have a healthcare power of attorney? And so I begin that discussion at the first visit. So people know that it's on my mind and that I say to them, even people, you know, 50 years old, do you 
do you have these things in line? Uh, and let's say somebody will develop a condition like chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which really isn't immediately life-threatening. It may, 10 years down the road, prevent, present a, a problem that uh, turns into acute leukemia. But you have a chronic illness that you know what the end will be, and you have to say to the patient, well, you know, now you have a chronic illness, and I want to make sure that I know what you want, just in case. And so you start the conversation. I started with people who come in even when they're 50, but especially with new older patients. I ask them, how do you see um, the end of your life? You know, you're living now independently, but you might need to go into assisted living, or are you gonna, do you see yourself wanting to live with your children? Oftentimes the children will bring in their parents and we have this discussion together. So I think that that's the ideal way to have it. Now, everything isn't ideal. So oftentimes these discussions occur when someone gets a diagnosis either of cancer or congestive heart failure or of um, some other progressive neurologic disease mm. um, that comes up. And then we need to uh, really have that discussion pretty early on in those diagnoses. And oftentimes I try to involve the subspecialists. So you're kind of avoiding the crisis by ad addressing this before the crisis has arrived. Right. You want to be prepared for the crisis because everybody's going to have an end-of-life issue, an end-of-life event. And for some people, they've already thought about it and they come to me with their plans and they say, you know, I, I don't want to be resuscitated. I don't want to be kept alive. And I make sure that, you know, I talk to them, their families. So, some other people don't want to talk about it at all. All right. So in a few moments, we're going to come back, and I was hoping we could talk a little more detail about how you explore, explore some of those conversations and what are the impacts on the caregivers, because you say you involve them in this discussion. Yes, I usually have that discussion, hopefully with a family member, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, and we'll continue that discussion in just a bit with Dr. Melanie Mincer, the lead physician and owner of Generations Family Practice. You're listening to Aging Matters, the show formerly known as Ion Health, and this is brought to you by Transitions Life Care, which was founded as Hospice of Wake County. You can find them online at transitionslifecare.org. This is News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, formerly known as Ion Health. Don't worry, the name has changed, but the cast is still here. I'm Jason Kong. Alongside me, as always, Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights, Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care, and our special guest today, well, our first special guest, I should say, is Dr. Melanie Mincer, the lead physician and owner of Generations Family Practice. And Cooper, we were having a, a discussion during the break about the concept of time and sort of how it applies to many things, but uh, time with your physician is uh, is kind of a, a crucial component here. Well, I was thinking, I went in the other day to um, have an urgent care visit, and I had a very stimulating uh, three-minute engagement with the a nurse practitioner. And for what I went in for, those three minutes was really, really all I needed to know. I mean, it was essentially you have the flu and here's Tamiflu and we'll see you in about a week and you're going to feel miserable. Hope you don't die. You know, that was kind of the conversation. <laughs> and what came out of that is that that may be fine for some conversations, but what Dr. Mincer was touching on earlier is a far more expansive, engaging, emotionally complex discussion about end-of-life decision with a caregiver. 
And so how do you fit that into your practice? Because this doesn't sound like a three or 12 minute discussion, Dr. Menser. Well, I must say that um, I usually don't have uh, very many uh, 12 minute discussions uh, with patients unless it's on a Saturday and it's walk-in and it's the flu. And uh, I um, am seeing 14 or 15 people in four hours, which during the week I see between 10 and 14 patients. When I have a patient that I want to have an end-of-life discussion with, I schedule a 45-minute time slot. And fortunately, Medicare does compensate the physician for this special type of discussion. I think that it covers up to three um, appointments for end-of-life discussion. And if you put that on as an extra diagnosis, then you can, uh, when you're dealing with a patient with congestive heart failure or chronic obstructive lung disease, some of the chronic di care diagnoses, and then you put end-of-life discussion on, you get paid more money. So it is a myth that doctors don't get paid for talking about this. But you know, you, you say it's a myth that doctors don't get paid to talk about it, and I believe that's the truth. But I also think, based on my years of experience in the field and some guests we've had on the show before, a lot of doctors don't like to talk about it. I think that you're absolutely right. And part of that is that only recently have they incorporated education about end-of-life issues into medical uh, curricula. When I taught at UNC, in two, up, I left in 2003, we had um, one hour on end-of-life discussion in the mm -hmm. first-year curriculum. Wow. And that was a lot compared to other places. Now, it is incorporated into different rotations in family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, and some of the subspecialties, so the points get hit, hit on in the training, and that does train the doctor to at least know the content material. Learning how to talk to patients is something that we used to spend much more time with in the first year. Now it's incorporated in first and second year curricula, but the students are now trained with simulated patients, and always one of the discussions they have are end-of-life type discussion. So we specifically address that with the medical students. And so hopefully the younger physicians will be more comfortable than the older physicians. And one of the other things I think we have an issue with, with the, which I've heard as a theme in the past, is we are in such a rich area as far as research and medical advancement and opportunities to try all these trials to keep trying to prolong life. And, you know, it must be hard sometimes when you're, when you're talking with a family and they hear of a potential research trial that could potentially prolong life. Nobody really knows if you're getting the real drug or the placebo, I mean, that you must really be up against a rock and a hard place sometimes. Yes, and I think that you're always going to have something else to offer the patient. The question is, and needs to be said both by the primary care doctor and the subspecialist and the research um, physician, what is the quality of life for this person going to be? Mm -hmm. Some people really want everything to be possibly done at the end of life. Mm -hmm. And they are more concerned about gaining extra life than they are having quality time. Other patients say, you know what, I don't want to spend the last six weeks of my life throwing up being doped up, or I don't want to be in incredible pain, or I just want to be home. I don't want to be going in and out of the hospital. And that discussion needs to happen every time something else is offered. Uh, I work with some very good oncologists, um, Mark Graham and Suzanne Kirby, and they have these discussions with their patients all the time. And it makes it easier for me. Uh, sometimes I will say to them, do you think this person is ready for hospice care or palliative care? And they'll say, I'm not sure. Or they'll say, I've already mentioned it to them. So 
I'm, we're lucky in Cary that we have those kind of resources. Also, uh, Rex um, Hematology Oncology yeah. incorporates um, hospice into the discussion. So I think in certainly in the triangle, we're very lucky that we have educated physicians and resources. One of the uh, oncologists that's uh, been uh, associated with Transitions Life Care for years once made a great point to me. He said, the question is not whether there's something I can do. The question is, is there's something I can do that's going to be meaningful and helpful to the patient. And the questions also often posed to me, well, doctor, isn't there something you can do? Yes, there's always, always something, something can I can do. do. It isn't necessarily going to be doing something that improves your life and improves your experience while you're while you're here. And I thought that was a, an interesting distinction, and he felt like that that was a challenge he has with families because there's this idea, that particularly in this area, as Nicole mentioned, there's always hope. There's always an option. Well, there isn't a way to beat mortality yet. There's not a way to beat mortality, and I really think what patients want to hear is that their doctor is going to be there with them. Not that, you know, we're going to send them off to the next oncologist to the next study, but I will be there with you, and you don't have to worry. We'll make sure you're not in pain. We'll make sure mm -hmm. that you're taken care of, and we'll support your family. And I think that oftentimes allows patients to really get incredible emotional relief because mm -hmm. the sense of abandonment, they're, they're yep. gonna be left off in a hospital or end up with not seeing their doctor. And this is a problem with doctors not making house calls anymore. There is an organization, Doctors Making House Calls, that take care of patients in their homes. But um, it used to be a part of your regular care to go visit people at home. Now, I think it's harder and I, I really encourage um, physicians to try to do house calls although they say oh I don't get compensated but you know you do get compensated it's it's a matter of choice and or making it easy for the patient to come into your office making it you know hours that the family can get there mm -hmm. we have evening hours sometimes the family brings somebody in at six o'clock when they come home from work and that makes it easier so I think with the increasing access to primary care that the healthcare system is proposing the current healthcare system is proposing um, this may make it easier to take care of patients uh, with continuity for a longer time at the end of life. So it's not that often that we have the opportunity to speak with a community physician of your reputation and caliber here on the show, and it's a, quite a privilege to have you on here. I'm kind of curious to know from your perspective, what are some of the most common myths and misconceptions that you hear from families, and probably a lot of people have it in their mind listening to the show today, about end-of-life care, particularly hospice and palliative care? Well, I think... Um, Dr. Kevorkian didn't do us any favors when he advertised um, quick end of life. And so I think for many people, they think that you go into hospice and, you know, someone's going to give you morphine and they're going to end your life. And that's not what hospice is. Far from it. Um, so I think that's one myth that, you know, we're not Amen. a death machine. Okay. I think the second myth is that unless you have cancer, you can't be getting hospice care. So if you have a disease that doesn't kill you within three or four weeks, you're not eligible for hospice. Hospice care doesn't have a time limit on it. It used to be, oh, you had to have six, you have to, had to die within six months. And so everybody says, well, how am I going to know I'm going to die in six months? So now some of the chronic care conditions like congestive heart failure and chronic obstructive lung disease and um, some of the other cancers and um, diseases where people can't eat and they're just sort of fading away, right. but you don't know when they're going to to die, we used to think that we couldn't provide care for those patients. And now hospice is there for them. So they have really high quality gotcha. 
care without a time limit. So I think the time issue used to be a big barrier. And I think the last issue is that your own doctor can't take care of you, that you have to, you know, get somebody else to take care of you. And really, um, the hospice movement and the palliative care movement allows primary care doctors like me to, to essentially co-manage their patients that they've had for 10, 20 years. And so there isn't the sense of abandonment. And it's really gratifying for the physician to be able to get the help they need because we don't all have the training on what to do. And so we can pick up the phone and say, hey, one of my patients is on the palliative care service or on the hospice service, and I don't know how to manage their pain. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you for, for your insight as a primary care physician on these challenges. If folks would like to reach uh, Generations Family Practice, how's the best way that they can do that? Well, like all good new practices these days, we're on social media. You can like us on Facebook. Um, you can put us into um, the uh, uh, Google your, your, your as generationsfamilypractice.com, and our website will come up. Perfect. Thank you so much, and thank, thank you for you. coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Dr. Melanie Mincer, again with Generations Family Practice. As she said, you can find more online. Uh, if you want to Google Generations Family Practice, you can also find a link uh, on our website if you go to WPTF.com and find the Aging Matters page. Thank you so much. We'll be back in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters here on News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF, you are listening to Aging Matters, formerly known as Ion Health. And this is about care for you and your parents, and it's a service of Transitions Life Care, founded as Hospice of Wake County. You can always find them online at transitionslifecare.org. I am Jason Kong, and the cast remains the same. Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights, Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. And Cooper, we had a really fascinating discussion with Dr. Mincer just a minute ago. And, you know, we're, we're, we've got a new guest in here, but we're going to continue with some of the same topics. We are, and it's always a privilege to be able to come to the studio with one of our colleagues at Transitions Life Care. Today we have Dr. Christine Kendellwall, who is the Director of Inpatient Palliative Care for Transitions Life Care. Uh, she's a uh, physician who's certified in hospice and palliative medicine, and we wanted to bring her perspective in uh, to follow up on the discussion we had with Dr. Mincer earlier. Uh, Dr. Mincer coming at it from the family practice perspective, and then Dr. Kendellwall coming in as a practicing hospice and palliative medicine physician. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here today. We're glad you're here. And I, I, you were in the studio listening to the first discussion, and I could I could see things popping in your mind that you that were resonating with you that Dr. Mentor had said. So I have a feeling you've got some things already at the tip of your tongue. <laughs> That's right. I, I want to applaud Dr. Mincer, um, first of all, with her reputation. And, and uh, I get the pleasure of meeting families and patients at the hospital setting. Um, but often I get to know the family pro- physician providers in the community through the regards from families and patients. And so it's been, an, it's been really an honor to meet Dr. Mincer today. I also want to compliment on the amazing work she does every day for these complicated patients and family situations. She's already doing the, the footwork of a lot of what I do in the hospital setting. Um, Dr. Mincer makes a point about people don't want to be abandoned by their physicians. 
And and I don't want to take that role over as their primary provider or physician taking over care. I want to work collaboratively with the the primary physicians um, because there's 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 something so valuable of having years of working with a patient and family through all the hardships, the ups and downs of chronic diseases and illnesses, through their crisis, and no one wants to feel abandoned by their primary care provider at even the most important times of our lives as we progress with a chronic illness. Um, and so I wanted to uh, apl- again doctor, applaud Dr. Mincer, um, that and that I just I'm out there to help someone like her and her families and patients. That's what I do a lot of the time. So let's zoom out for a second. A lot of our listeners may have no idea what a hospice and palliative care physician does. Uh, and you have worked in both the community-based care as well as the acute care. So could you kind of describe for us where your role is and, and, and for a layperson, where do you fit in this large system of care? If I'm an older person, when would I meet you and what would you be doing to me or for me? How does this work? That's a really great question. So how I describe palliative care, it's a team approach to care to improve quality of life for patients with serious illnesses, um, focusing on their well-being, not only their physical symptoms, such as pain or shortness of breath, but also addressing their emotional, their spiritual, and social aspects of their life. It's also taking care of their families and caregivers, because when we're taking care of our patients, we can't ignore the fact that the majority of the time, it's families as their caregivers. Um, the team approach involves, um, it's probably the only field of medicine where we're trained as physicians not to work by ourselves individually, but with a group approach. I have a chaplain, social workers, nurse practitioners, and nurses that are part of my care team to help manage and care for patients and families. That's really what we do. I'm curious about the caregiver perspective. Can you talk a little bit about some of the most common needs that the family caregivers have that you work with that surround that patient who's in desperate need of care? Mm-hmm. That's a really great question, Nicole. Uh, the obvious comes to mind, probably all of us would talk about, and Dr. Mincer, the actual physical labor work sometimes. Um, you know, it's complicated now. We live a long time in this country with a lot of complicated medical problems, heart disease, kidney disease. And with that becomes more medications, more complicated um, equipment. I mean, I have patients who have go home on tubes and they live years with tubes or drains. And, and so we now have a lot. We expect families to be able just to take care and manage these complicated medicines and, and equipment. So that's one obvious is, ta- is the laborious part of, of caregiving. But there's a lot of the non- physical, more um, social aspect that caregivers are dealing with. There's a lot of guilt. They want to take care of their loved one, but they're having a hard time and they're afraid to talk about it because often they feel guilty that they're questioning that people or physicians will question that you know they want to do best for their loved one at home. So there's a lot of guilt that comes with that. And, and I spend a lot of time just validating and listening to caregivers um, and let them know, don't feel guilty that it's becoming hard. It is hard. You were never trained to do this. We, we expect a lot now for caregivers to go home and take care of your spouse or your parent and, and get on with life when it's not that easy. So, um, and that's why I have social workers. They really sit down and address the psychosocial aspects of caregiving, not just the physical laborious part where we can get equipment in. Well, and sometimes people, I think, are, are afraid to say, I don't like doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't mean they're unwilling to do it. But, you know, it is not everybody was 
born into being inherently a caregiver. And I was going to say, too, you know, one of the things that I, I can imagine that you're seeing is the issue with people trying to maintain a job, take mm-hmm. care of their children, and then add on this additional layer of now take care of spouse or parents. And and, and then are you finding, I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective, since you deal with so many hundreds of patients, are you finding that employers are not necessarily as flexible as they could be? Or what are some of the challenges you see with that? Because I know when people call transitions guiding lights, oftentimes they're huddled in the quarter of a cu- corner of their cubicle at work, afraid to take one more second out of their job because they've had a leave to take their loved one to 20 doctor's appointments in the last month. But they desperately need a resource. That is correct, Nicole. That's probably a lot of it. Is, um, and it's hard when you're, you want to support that caregiver, but you're right, a lot of it is financial. They don't have a choice. They have to work. Mm-hmm. And often they're the breadwinner of the family. They, they're bringing the income in, but also how are they balancing, managing the everyday of their kids? Mm-hmm. And, and their aging parent or their spouse. That, I mean, that is a, that is a big problem. Um, we're lucky we live in a, an area such as the Wake County area a lot of us live in, that there are more resources. We have guiding lights that anyone has access to, which is wonderful. And that is so helpful for families because I often recommend using guiding lights and they're so relieved to have resources that they can log on at midnight when they actually get a moment to log on and start looking and doing some research on their own in a private setting where they don't have to be fearful of being at work and doing that. That's a great point. When we look at the uh, analytics on our website, we find that what you just said is, is reflected in those analytics. You know, it's, it's not that people are searching during the day. It's very often they've finally gotten their loved one to bed. They're exhausted, and they're in that moment of recognition that I cannot continue doing this the way I've always been doing it. And so at that point, they're looking for resources that, you know, it's, it's one in the morning and there's a spike in online activity. And it's because you're dealing with caregivers who are exhausted. They're still working at 1 a.m. They're just not getting paid for it. And so we've got to find ways to support those folks. And I, th- I applaud your approach to this. That includes the caregiver in the discussion. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you could give us an example of um, how palliative care has made a difference in a particular patient's life. Kind of just talk about what it actually looks like to receive palliative care and and how it can affect that person down the road. So often, and again, my practice is in the inpatient setting. um, And remember, I'm coming in often more advanced or end stage chapters of this person's journey of their life. So I have a minute to come in and to start a conversation that is very complicated and difficult. Um, often, again, I, I'm Dr. Mincer is does an amazing job. She's already initiating these conversations in her office setting. But I'm often coming in where other patients and families have never even had a beginning discussion. Mm-hmm. So I often start very simple. Tell me your story. How do... And, and there's a fear factor. Sometimes there's this misconception that people think I come in and talk about death and dying. On the contrary, I talk about living. And so I sit down and begin my conversation with tell me your story. Tell me about you. And they'll start telling me about their heart disease. And I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear about you, the person. And tell me about your family. So I begin a conversation to build a trust and go from there. And often I'm starting with symptom management. I build a lot of trust by managing their shortness of breath and pain and that often leads to the next trust of bringing more support 
for the family and, and getting services at the home setting. So that would be an example. And that, that trust has to be so vital with what you do, Absolutely. I can imagine. And we'll continue this conversation with Dr. Christine Candlewall. She's with Transitions Life Care, and you're listening to Aging Matters, formerly known as Ion Health. And we'll be back in just a bit here on News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, formerly known as Ion Health. I am Jason Kong. Alongside me, as always, Cooper Lynn with Transitions Life Care, Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights. You can find Transitions Life Care online at transitionslifecare.org. And our guest uh, for this segment, continuing from the last one, is Dr. Christine Candlewall. And Cooper, we were just wrapping up a discussion on trust and, you know, that's that's got to be such a vital thing when connecting with the caregiver because you know you don't you don't want to be talking to this sort of almost faceless physician who's just there to give you instructions you need to connect with them you know it's interesting we spend so much time because i totally agree with you jason that we spend so much time talking about you know electronic medical records and resources and talking about uh, you know reimbursement rates and medicare medicaid and what they'll cover fundamentally the currency of exchange for everything is trust and when there is no trust, we can't have a real discussion, whether it's inside of a family or with a physician. And uh, Dr. Gandelwal was really ex- exploring that, how she establishes trust early on as the very first thing you do when you go in the room. Mm-hmm. And from that, it's the door opener for everything else. That's right. What, what, you, you, you asked about their personal narrative. Share with me your personal narrative, your personal story. How does that then lead you into the next step? One thing, um, when I hear someone's story, what they value, it really gives me more insight to what they value in their life, how they would define quality of life for themselves, not what they would, def- not how a family member would say my mom would want this or this, but that my patients tell me themselves in their own way what they truly value in their life, what would be acceptable in their life, what kind of. Um, disability or limitations are they still acceptable of living with and that's a really a lot what i explore when i get to know them as the person what hobbies they enjoy what what were important things in their life whether it was a career a job hobbies things like that their family and so when i get more information about this person it helps me to help them navigate the road ahead about decision making about what they would want or not want based on their personhood. So that's a lot of what I do in the beginning. It's easy to, for me, again, I'm trained in symptom management, so it's easy um, often just to start with the basics of pain management. We, a lot of people are living in a lot of pain. There's a lot of fear about these pain medications, appropriately, but also I'm trained to do well for them with their pain and to use medicines to help them. So what's some of the fear that people are facing regarding pain medicine? Are they afraid to talk about pain or are they afraid of the medicine and the treatment? All of the above. Um, I think dealing with an older generation, there's a generation there that they're very stoic. Um, They don't necessarily say pain per se. They'll say discomfort. There's different Mm -hmm. ways they describe what pain they're experiencing. Um, So... So that's part of it is how people define pain. And they don't want to seem weak. I Absolutely. mean, that's a big like. This Especially is... in front of their family. Yeah. Especially when they've ran the household, they've raised five children, 
they've done amazing things in their lives. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, Nicole, well, it's a great and I point. I think, you know, as a social worker by trade, I've often noticed you get one story from the patient or whatever you call mm-hmm. them when the family's right. in the room. Exactly. And they'll say certain things, but then if you can get them alone, you'll hear something quite different often. Absolutely. What they maybe perhaps really want. And that becomes really important as we were hearing earlier about conversations about advanced directives and things of that nature of truly picking the person in your family who would make the decision that you want, not what they want for you. Absolutely. And, and actually, I do that. I, I speak separately with families. And I speak separately with my patients. And, and then I come together and facilitate. Let's talk about what you're all not talking about. That's a lot of what I'm doing is putting them all together in a room now and to talk about some really important things. So once again, this doesn't sound like a 10-minute physician encounter. No. <laughs> so, well, so my really, my let, average consult with my team, usually with me, my social workers, and at least an hour. To really get into it. So you're Absolutely. talking about an hour That's with you and visit. your social worker, mm-hmm. yes. uh, who's also trained in this. And Correct. so... And then we have the the patient or family, depending on the the dynamic there. That's a very long, engaged conversation. It sounds like you have more than one of these conversations. Absolutely. And I don't like to throw everything all at once on my first visit. Again, it's building trust and walking this journey with them. So often when they're in the hospital, we know they'll be there for some days. I We come in probably every day, every other day. I accommodate for caregiver schedules. Well, We'll meet either before their work day starts. In the middle of a lunch, they'll meet with me. We'll do conference calls together. We'll meet in the evenings. Again, we, we really respect the the caregivers' needs for also working. So we also base our meetings together like that as well. You know, Jason, we're all sitting in the room here, and we we have industry speak. We understand kind of what we're talking about here. But you sitting in this room, not really ever having to help a family member through this journey, what are some of the questions or thoughts that you have as you hear this conversation? Yeah, I guess the first thought that has come as we're in this conversation right now is that you know, it's almost it almost sounds like an art form uh, what you're doing because you're you're trying to connect with people on this level of you know a, a very intimate level of trust, and uh, you know I I was wondering you know do you see how how do people react to you afterwards because it feels like you know it's it's very hard to get this level of attention and trust and care and knowledge from a physician or really anyone, you know, so how do you, what are the changes that you see in the people that come to you from maybe the beginning of the visit to after, or maybe, you know, three visits down the road? Wonderful. Quite honestly, um, my background actually as Dr. Mincer is I was a family physician and a geriatrician out in the practice. So I, I my approach is, is very much like Dr. Mincer. I'm a family physician, geriatrician at heart, and I sit down at the bedside and surely I truly see at the end of my visit such a weight off shoulders of not only my patients but their families. You truly, literally, can see the ease on their body language. So, um, and when I'm often invited, may I come back tomorrow? Because it's heavy stuff we talk about. I'm always invited back, and that's always a reassurance to me that okay, we're getting somewhere, mm-hmm. and they're okay with this. And actually, I, I I have families and patients tell me, thank God, some doctor finally sat down connected the dots for me thank god i have been seeing this with my dad i've been seeing this with my husband and no one has actually sat down and and let me have an honest conversation about all this they feel validated absolutely and that's a lot what i do nicole is validating what people have already been seeing and knowing and no physician has actually sat down and explained it and told them to them people appreciate that when they have true honest 
discussion, then they can make better decisions. So obviously, a lot of what your work is, is an inpatient setting. And those listening might be thinking, well, gosh, this sounds wonderful. I really wish I had this for my mom now, but she lives at home. Is this a possibility for someone living at home? Absolutely. There are now um, palliative care providers and services in the community setting. When I see a family patient and they want to continue this support with palliative care services, we connect them on discharge to have the follow-up. We have team members that will go and see them in their home setting, assisted living, and even their nursing home settings. So we cover all um, sites of care, whether it's inpatient, hospital, or the outpatient setting as well. And one of the questions that so often comes up and we try and address on this show is, you know, how is this paid for? This sounds awesome, but I'm not sure I can afford it. At Transitions Life Care, the one of the founding principles um, back in 1979 was that no one would ever be turned away because of an inability to pay. And so if the question in your mind is, can you afford to access palliative care in this community? The answer is yes. Um, without looking at your insurance card, we can tell you the answer is yes. And the, the more critical issue is, is within a family. Can you afford not to access this level of care and, and make some of these plans? Do, do families have those concerns when they come to you? I know we hear them at times. Absolutely. And Cooper, I exactly say the same thing you, you just said to me, what I tell families. You know, Medicare covers it, but also there's resources out there organizations such as transitions out we don't really care if you don't have the means because we're going to take care of you that's at the end of the day we want to take care of you and your family it's a crazy model of care right <laughs> we're going to we're, we're going to open our exactly. arms and provide care to folks yeah exactly Doc, thank you absolutely thank you so much dr christine candlewall thank you so much for being on the thank show thank you so much it's been such a pleasure today a great discussion and if you missed uh, any part of it or if you want to go back and hear the words of dr melanie mincer you can go online to wptf.com and click on the aging matters section uh, you can find a, a bunch of links go back and listen to the show if you know anyone that you think might benefit from listening to the show you can absolutely share it with them as well you can also always go online to transitions life care Org, an invaluable resource for the matters that we've discussed today. Thank you so much for listening to Aging Matters, formerly known as Ion Health, show all about care and comfort that surrounds you, and this is a service of Transitions Life Care. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF.